what type of human being receives enjoyment from watching this? That's the question that bounced around in my seven-year-old head as I stood in a circle of elementary boys on the playground. They spent the recess finding spiders and then putting them two by two into a makeshift ring and making them fight to the death. I recall seeing the spiders attempt to escape the box, but the boys pushed them back down with a stick. Eventually, the black spider puffed up and charged the red spider. He sunk his fangs into the red body, and the losing spider shriveled and died. The black spider lived to fight another opponent. I thought the whole event was disgusting and just really bizarre. But I couldn't take my eyes off the fight. Nine years later, my stepfather won the election to become the sheriff of our county. I remember talking to him as he put on his SWAT gear. And he says, we're going to bust a cockfight. I'd never heard of this, so I wanted some further explanation. Apparently, there was an illegal event that was growing in our county. People were raising fighting roosters. They'd glue or tape metal spurs to the feet of these animals and put them two by two into a ring. And they would fight to the death. They had these events in far-off forested areas. For the second time in my life, the question entered my mind. What type of person, person receives pleasure from watching this? A few years later, that question entered my mind for the third time. This time, guys were raising pit bulls to fight. Many professional boxers and rappers from the 90s and football players like Michael Vick made it a semi-socially acceptable form of backyard entertainment. Often $100 bills laying under rocks, betting on their dog. It's actually still alive and well in the United States. People are arrested every year for dog fighting. They manipulate the bloodlines to breed for maximum aggressiveness. Legal or not, dog fighting, it's held in all over the world. In parts of Latin America, Pakistan, Japan, Afghanistan, Russia other Eastern European countries. It seems like rings are all over the world. Sometimes I want to enter into the psyche of these people and find out what makes them find pleasure in putting animals in a ring and making them fight to the death. You know what's even more alarming than elementary boys making spiders fight to the death? You know what's even more troubling than... Drunks watching roosters fight to the death? You know what's even more disturbing than guys placing dogs in a ring and making them fight to the death? The fact that our good God, the creator of all creatures, placed two of his creatures in a ring and made them fight to the death. This seems like an act against the nature of a good man, much less the nature of a good God. In our text, God sets up a ring. Not on an elementary playground or in a forested area, but according to verse 2, in modern-day Iran, in a place called Susa, specifically by a canal, a man-made canal, 900-foot-wide canal. The canal was called Eulis by the classic writers. Daniel stands by the canal like I did on the elementary school playground, and he sees God drop the first animal in the ring. 
Let's watch it in verse 3. I raised my eyes and saw, and behold, a ram standing on the bank of the canal. It had two horns, and both horns were high, but one was higher than the other, and the higher, and the higher one came up last. Now, immediately, we recognize that this isn't the typical animal that would go into a ring. Usually, you place savage animals in a ring. Predators, spiders, lions, bulls. Here, God releases a male sheep. I mean, you're expecting scary sounds from the ring. A roar, a growl. But here, you hear a bah. I mean, that's, I'm not intimidated. It's not very scary. I mean, what, what is God going to have fighting next? Ladybugs? I'm just going to move on to the next backyard. Something a little more intense. Besides all that, don't, don't sheep travel in flocks? You don't, you don't see any, any other sheep around. Which is weird because in the Bible where you see one, you typically see a flock. Notice as verse 4 continues, I saw the ram charging westward and northward and southward. No beast could stand before him, and there was no one who could rescue from his power. He did as he pleased and became great. Well, apparently, I was wrong. This isn't merely an overgrown domestic farm animal. He's a beast. Actually, he's, he's according to the text, been killing beasts. Maybe he's defeated a pack of hyenas and, and a lion. This ram seems to have no weakness or chink in his armor. He's strutting around like he's king of the canal. And now God drops the second animal in the ring. Notice verse 5. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth. Let's stop there. We have a male sheep, ram. Now a male goat. In the Hebrew, it's literally a shaggy goat. Verse 6. And he came to the ram with two horns... Which, which I had seen standing on the bank of the canal, and he ran at him in his powerful wrath. I saw him come close to the ram, and he was enraged against him, and struck the ram and broke his two horns. And the ram had no power to stand before him, but he cast him down to the ground and trampled on him. And there was no one who could rescue the ram from the goat's power. The verbs are truly noteworthy. Enraged, struck, broke, cast to the ground, trampled. This ram is like a dying spider shriveling up. He's like a bloody rooster taking its last gasp. This ram is like a whimpering dog just before the final throat bite. I feel it necessary to let you in on a little, a little secret I think it may take some pressure off of God. God gave Daniel this event as a vision. These aren't real animals. This isn't a real ram and a real goat. As, as it turns out, what's in the ring isn't livestock. It's kingdoms. Notice verse 20. As for the ram that you saw with two horns, these are the kings of, underline, Media and Persia. Notice verse 21. And the goat is the king of, underline, Greece. And the great horn between his eyes is the first king. Well, actually, I'm not quite so sure this takes pressure off of God. In fact, this is even worse. 
God set up a biblical fight club. UFC, but fight to the death. You can't leave until the other opponent stops breathing. What I saw growing up was distasteful enough. Imagine God putting people in the ring and making them fight to the death. It's barbaric. Here's how I want to attack this today. I want to give you seven truths that will help you understand this passage and ultimately help you understand your God. Seven truths. Truth number one. God did not originally create animals or humans to fight to the death. There were no fighting spiders in the Garden of Eden or fighting dogs or roosters for that matter. Animals didn't kill each other until sin happened. Human sin brought animal aggressiveness. Because of human sin, animals have to die by the paws of one another and by the hands of men. Just think, who killed the first animal? In the Garden of Eden, Adam and Eve sinned and recognized for the first time their nakedness. God supplied clothing, a covering for Adam and Eve. Where did he get the covering? First animal death. Killing an animal. An animal to provide a covering. Sin came not by God's desire, but by ours. We chose a piece of fruit over him. There were no fist fights, murders, or even wars until sin entered the bloodstream of humanity. Because of man's original sin, since then the world has been filled with fight rings. Rings filled with animals and rings filled with people. In this season, I've, I've just been finding myself thinking about this new kingdom that God has promised for us. One in which the lion will lay down with the lamb. Kingdom where no human beings will die. And former enemies will eat together at the same table. It's truth number one. Truth number two. Your current world empire will not last forever. Notice verse one. In the third year of the reign of King Belshazzar, a vision appeared to me Daniel. Now, you're seeing a, a chart on your screen. I want you to notice on the chart, Daniel received this vision around the age of 65 to 72. This chapter happens chronologically between chapters 4 and 5. So Daniel is still living in the Babylonian Empire. But King Nebi is dead. After numerous political positionings, eventually Nebuchadnezzar and his son Belshazzar take the throne... And they're currently in the third year of their reign. And notice as verse 1 continues. A vision appeared to me, Daniel, after that which appeared to me at the first. This dream clearly reminds him of the dream that appeared in chapter 7. In verse 2, And I saw in the visions, and when I saw, I was in Susa the citadel, which is in the province of Elam. And I saw in the vision, and I was at the Ule Canal. Susa was located in what today is southwest Iran. Now, some of you have been there. It's 230 miles east of Babylon. 
Now at the time that Daniel wrote, Susa was just an eastern town at the extremity of the Babylonian Empire. It's way back in the middle of nowhere. It's, it's a big desert, population zero. And, and Daniel, like Ezekiel and John in the book of Revelation, was carried, transported, teleported by a prophetic vision to Susa. Susa is also called Shushan. Later, it would become the winter residence of the Persian kings. When Esther sat on her throne as queen, she sat in the palace built by Darius in the city of Susa, a.k.a. Shushan. When Nehemiah was to return to Jerusalem to rebuild the walls, he was commissioned and departed from where he dwelt, and it was in the city of Susa. So this became a very significant city later on. Daniel is physically in Babylon, but emotionally and spiritually, he's in Susa. Seeing into the future, seeing the new headquarters, the new White House. And let's just stop here and make application. When Daniel receives this vision, Babylon is prospering. And it seems like they will last forever. Yet this vision reveals to him that Babylon will be toppled. There is a ram in the future. And he will move the throne to Susa. Friends, here's what I want to say to you. Nations come and go. Nations are born. They live. They die. They rise and fall with great regularity. In fact, as I study history, I am more and more shocked with the fact that nations rapidly pass off the scene. I look back at the empires of the Hittites and the Egyptians and the Assyrians. In more modern times, some of you have seen the greatness of the days of England. Or you remember the greatness of France. You remember when Italy was a major world power and threatened to even dominate Europe under the leadership of Mussolini. You remember Germany, Hitler nearly conquering the world. We have seen the rise of Japan as a military power. Russia seems to have had its day. China seems to be having its day now. And America may be on the wane. Now, typically, I, I get a lot of pushback from that. And the pushback is always this. The U.S. has been powerful for so long. How can we be toppled? Did you know that Rome existed for 1,500 years... 1,500 years from India to England. How old is our country? Not yet 300. We're in diapers. We are toddlers. No one would have gone to Rome at age 300 and said, there's going to be a day when they're just going to study you in the history books and look at your ruins. No, you wouldn't go to Rome and say that. They're Romans. They'd kill you. They'd cut your head off. But people thought that the Roman kingdom couldn't be destroyed. And yet in the U.S., we're thinking we're always going to be here. We're not always going to be here. The kingdom of God is always going to be here. Will destruction come from the outside? Will it disintegrate from the inside? I, I don't know. But be good citizens, be good Americans, be good soldiers. But this is not your ultimate kingdom. If it becomes your ultimate kingdom, it will manifest itself in a preoccupation with the preservation of your nation 
it sometimes materializes itself in Bible study with equating America with Israel. Our current kingdom will not last forever. And that is why we must attach our loyalty and our hope to another kingdom. Truth number three. God views wars differently than you do. You underline this in verse 20, but the ram is the Medo-Persian empire. Of, of all the kingdoms striving for world power at this time, God predicted who would replace the Babylonians before they actually replaced the Babylonians. This is a 15 to 25 year accurate prediction. And this entire chapter is geopolitical. The Bible is not about philosophy and myth. It's about history and people, times, dates, places. Marcellinus was a 4th century historian. He says that the Persian general, or the Persian monarch, when he stepped in front of his troops for a battle, he represented a ram somewhere on his attire. And the budding and the pushing in all directions which the ram is described to do indicates that the Persian kingdom is expanding. Persia already occupied the east, so that's why it says in verse 4, details, prediction, even how they're going to take over the world. First, they will go west, and they'll take Syria, Asia Minor, and Babylon, and they did. Then they pushed north, took Armenia and all the region of the Caspian Sea. Then they went south, took Egypt and Ethiopia and parts of Africa. But so what? What does any of this have to do with Daniel? He's going to be dead and gone before the end of the Persian Empire. Why tell these things to Daniel? Unless God wants to reveal something about himself to Daniel. Something about his control in the world. Something about his plan for putting this sheep in the ring. For quite a while, the ram appeared indestructible. Unbeatable. And I want to remind you, no matter how great and menacing an empire may appear to be, it is simply an actor in a play written by someone else. Have you ever watched a Civil War reenactment? People get all dressed up in their gear, they carry their rifles, they're setting up tents, they're wearing old-fashioned shoes. And if you don't know one of those reenactments are taking place and you just show up, you're going to think, man, I'm stepping back in time. Why are people dressed like this? Is that, is that a canteen? Is that a musket? For us, everything is war. For God, everything is a reenactment. He knows and controls the future. Behind the world we see is a world God sees and occasionally lets us see. He not only knows who is going to be in the ring, but He knows who is going to walk out of the ring victorious. God is never threatened by worldly events. Now let me give you a big historical side note here. The Persians dealt with their prisoners of war differently than the Babylonians did. So you remember the Babylonians took Daniel, his friends, everyone, and they 
made them leave Jerusalem, brought them to Babylon. Well, the Persians dealt, dealt with it differently. So when they would take over Babylon eventually, you know, 15, 20 years from now, the, they allowed the displaced POWs to return to their homeland and rebuild temples to their gods. The Persians believed if they had happy sl- slaves, then they would be loyal slaves. So in 15 to 25 years, Israel would be able to return to Jerusalem and sacrifice lambs again. A lamb to provide a covering. The temple would be rebuilt. A high priest would be installed. Information that Daniel has yet to discover. But it's 15 to 25 years out. Truth number four. God allows empires to rise to further the spread of his gospel. His gospel. Verse 5, Daniel recounts the second animal entering the ring. We've read a portion. Let's finish. As I was considering, behold, a male goat came from the west across the face of the whole earth without touching the ground. And the goat had a conspicuous horn between his eyes. Now, who is the goat? Well, that's, it's, it's Michael Jordan, of course, right? No, that's the goat in basketball. Who is the goat in Daniel 8? Well, the Bible makes the interpretation for us with no guessing. You've already underlined it in verse 21. This is not Kyle saying who it is. This is God saying who it is. It is Greece. Now, I'm not a farmer, but I think goats typically have two horns. But this one only has one. It's like some freak unicorn goat. And he kind of reminds me of a cartoon. He's running so fast, his feet do not touch the ground. We've already read verses 6 and 7. These two animals or these two kingdoms have a head-on collision and the goat comes out on top. Literally, he's on top of the ram stomping him. And this is another amazing prediction. It's looking 200 years into the future. Medo-Persia will fall just like Babylon fell. They will be vanquished to the dustpin of, of history. The ram is dead. Long live the goat. By the way, Daniel, I, I know you're probably wondering who are the Greeks. Well, they're this relatively small blip on the map over here, but they're going to grow into a massive empire. Historians universally agree that the unusual horn that God said was a king represented Alexander the Great. Alexander the Great's father was Philip, king of Macedon. Philip wanted to conquer the Persians, so he raised a warrior king. Alexander was actually tutored by Aristotle as a boy. His parents were eventually assassinated, and he took the throne in his young 20s. He conquered the ancient world with lightning speed. He just swept everything from Europe to India to a portion of Africa. One of his titles was Lord of Asia. Now, verse 7 could not be a more eloquent description of when Alexander the Great met the forces of the Persian Empire at the Branicus River. Alexander had 35,000 men. The Persians had 100,000 foot soldiers and 10,000 horsemen. Alexander's forces were outnumbered 3 to 1. But they plunged through the river attacking Darius. It's reported that they killed 
20,000 men and only lost 100. In other words, he stomped on the ram. And the only plausible explanation for this event is to say that God intervened in a military campaign. Josephus, a first century Jewish historian, wrote The Antiquity of the Jews, History of the Jews. And the story I'm about to tell you isn't in the Bible, but it's reliable history. So don't put this on the same level as the word. But Josephus said, when Alexander conquered Israel, he approached the temple in Jerusalem. And you remember, it was functioning again because the Persians' view of POWs, um, slaves at home would be happy, happy slaves. So they let them worship their own gods and, and continue in their religious practices. So the high priest led the people to welcome Alexander the Great. And the high priest decked himself in purple. As Alexander approached, they welcomed him. And Alexander began to speak. He said that while he was in Macedonia, he had a dream of a high priest wearing purple, telling him that it was time to attack the Persians. And so he told the high priest, I come now to seek the blessing of the God of Israel. So he entered the temple with the high priest to offer a sacrifice to God. And Josephus says the high priest opened the Bible to Daniel 8, showed the prophecy that a king from Greece would conquer Persia, and then looked Alexander in the eye and said, You are the fulfillment. You are the goat. Josephus says Alexander believed the prophecy in the word of God and asked the high priest what he could do for him. And the high priest said, Grant religious freedom, which Alexander, Alexander granted before riding off with his army in tow to conquer Persia and fulfill Daniel. Eight. And that's Josephus' history. We do know Alexander conquered the known world by age 26. But what does verse 8 say? Then the goat became exceedingly great, but when he was strong, the great horn was broken. Alexander was dead at 33. Hero at 26, dead at 33. We don't know how he died. Some historians say poison, others malaria. This week I read a poem by Charles Ross Weed. He, he wrote a poem comparing two men. And the poem goes like this. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One lived and died for self, the other died for you and me. The Greek died on a throne, the Jew died on a cross. One's life a triumph seemed, the other but a loss. One led vast armies forth, the other walked alone. One shed a whole world's blood, the other gave his own. One won the world in life and lost it all in death. The other lost his life to win the world's faith. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. One died in Babylon and one died at Calvary. One gained all for self. And one himself he gave. And conquered, one conquered every tongue, the other every grave. When died the Greek, forever fell his throne of swords. But Jesus died to live forever, Lord of lords. Jesus and Alexander died at 33. The Greek made all men slaves, the Jew made all men free.
I love the last couple lines. One built a throne on blood. The other built on love. The one was born on earth. The other from above. The Greek forever died. The Jew forever lives. Now let's consider this truth at the bottom of your screen. Why in the world does God care if the Greek empire comes to power? Well, the Greeks bring a common language. They bring literacy. They bring education. They bring a university system that kind of educated the people out of myths. Alexander spread the Greek culture in Asia Minor, Syria, Egypt, Persia, Western India. He made a point to preserve the Greek language in each place he conquered. Even when Greece was conquered by Rome, 350 years later, Rome stole, copied, borrowed much of the Greek culture, including the language which was spoken around the world. I like to say it like this, the Roman army conquered the Greeks, but the Greek culture conquered the Romans. Greek became the commercial language of the Roman Empire. Let me ask you a question. What is the language of the New Testament? Greek. The Greek language is considered by some to have been the best medium ever known for expressing theological and philosophical ideas. Romans brought the roads everywhere. Greeks brought language everywhere. You need both roads and languages everywhere to get the gospel to the far-flung regions of the world. God is in the details. God will cause a nation to live and die to get the gospel to you. Truth number five. And I, I want this to land on you. How you read and process world and local news should be governed by God's sovereignty. I want to point out some divine passives in the text. Chapter 8, verse 1, the vision, the vision appeared to me. Now that's a divine passive. In other words, God gave the vision. In chapter 8, verse 8, the height of its power and great horn was broken. That's a divine passive. In other words, God took down the horn. Chapter 8, verse 12, because of the wickedness of the host was given over. That's a divine passive. In other words, God gave his people over. Chapter 8, verse 14, how long will this last 2,300 days? That's a divine passive. In other words, God will restore his people. See, we read history differently than God. You have to see the divine passives. Charles Spurgeon, one of my dead mentors, used to say that he read the newspaper to see how God was governing the world. That is, to see how God is building his kingdom and creating a longing for his kingdom. And this indeed is the best way to read news in a paper or to watch it on TV or to listen to it on a radio. Otherwise, you're either going to be a raging, angry maniac or a gullible media pawn. If you follow Spurgeon's method, you can still have hope when you hear about natural disasters because you serve one who can make sense of them. If you follow Spurgeon's methods, you can still sing in the face of injustice 
Because you serve one who is coming to bring full and final justice. If you follow Spurgeon's method, you can laugh at media tactics because you are governed by the words on these pages and not the words on those pages. Church, you must learn to process world and local news through the lens of God's sovereignty. How is he building his kingdom? And how is he creating a longing for this perfect kingdom? When you read that rams and goats are running wild, destroying everything in sight. You know what I'm saying by that, right? By rams and goats. When you read in the paper, you see on the news, and rams and goats are running wild, destroying everything in sight. Remember that the good shepherd knows how to handle sheep and goats. He specializes in that. Truth number six. This vision in Daniel 8 should both wreck you and motivate you. It should both wreck you and motivate you. Now, I am admittedly leaving a lot of meat on the bone in this passage. I'm dealing a lot with the big horn. I'm not dealing with the little horn. So because of that, I'm going to do something I've never done before. When I finish this, later on, I am recording just a, a, a private little panel with, with me and you. And I'm going to talk about some of the things that I'm, I'm not covering in this sermon. But some of the things that are, that are very powerful and, and, and relevant for where we are today. And if you're interested, we're going to, we're going to put that up on website, YouTube. Matthew will, Matthew will have all of that out there. But, but just for now, I want you to see that Daniel, in the, in the text, he's overhearing a dialogue between an angel and, I think, God. Because who can command a high angel except for God? No, notice verse 16. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of the Uli. And it called, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. Now this is the first time in the Bible that an angel is named Gabriel. And Gabriel is a fascinating angel. He, was, he made the big announcements for God. Uh, he went to Zacharias and says, Zacharias, you're going to have a son, and your son will be the forerunner of the Messiah. A little while later, he went to a virgin by the name of Mary and makes another, another pretty significant announcement. I know you're a virgin, Mary, but you're going to have a child, and he will be the Messiah. He'll save his people from their sins. Now, notice what happens when this angel approaches Daniel, verse 17. So, so Gabriel came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. It, when the angel came to give a message to John, do you remember what he did? He, he fell down in front of the angel too. So Gabriel's presence is intimidating, verse 18. And when he had spoken to me, I fell into a deep sleep with my face to the ground, but he touched me and made me stand up. Now, what did Daniel do after standing up? He went to a local TV show for interviews about meeting an angel. That's what he did. And then he sold millions of books and he wrote a blog post about... No. Verse 27. And I, Daniel, was overcome and lay sick for some days. What was his response to hearing God's word? It wrecked him. When is the last time God's word has wrecked you? I mean, left you in a puddle of tears 
wrecked you. Don't allow your heart to grow hard. Beg God to create new and fresh affections in you. Notice the next phrase. Then I arose and went about the king's business. Now this this is surprising. Daniel knew his current administration would not last. He knew the kingdom in which he was a citizen would eventually be toppled. So how do you go on knowing this? John Wesley was stopped by a stranger who asked him, what would you do if you knew that Christ was coming to return at noon the next day? John Wesley reached into his saddlebag and retrieved his diary. And he read out the engagements for the rest of that day and for the morning of the next day. And he said, that dear sir is what I would do. Friends, the United States is not going to last forever. It will likely outlast you and your children. But, but just panning through history, it's obvious it will not last forever. If you're a Christian, you've received the same promise that Daniel received. God is coming to set up His kingdom, of which you are a citizen. So what do you do while you wait? You busy yourselves with the king's business. You busy yourselves with the king's business. Truth number seven. This is a, I'm just saying this for, for, you know, for the first time. I, I wrote it out, of course, but I'm just saying it out loud. And it's a long one. This, is, this, this may run the record here for my longest, my longest application point. In this life, you may have to watch fighting rings or even be dropped into fighting rings. But you must realize Jesus was dropped into the ultimate fighting ring for you. In this life, you may have to watch fighting rings or even be dropped into fighting rings. But you must realize Jesus was dropped into the ultimate fighting ring for you. Now, if you're a non-Christian, just breathing in and out is a slap into the face of, of the Almighty One. So because your sin and my sin was an all-out assault on a holy and righteous God, it was impossible for you to come into His presence. So what's the answer? The offended one moved toward you. You didn't move toward Him. He moved toward you in sending His Son to leave the glories of heaven Sending him to what is best described as a fight ring. Earlier I told you that I think it may take some pressure off of God by revealing it wasn't animals in the text. But it got worse. It was people. And now it gets even more unthinkable. God dropped his only son Jesus into one side. Into one side of the ring. And on the other, there wasn't a ram. Or goat. Wasn't the Persians. Or the Greeks. You say it was the Romans, right? He died during the Roman Empire. It wasn't the Romans. It was your sin. At Calvary, your sin puffed up and charged Jesus. Engulfing him. And Jesus didn't fight back. He simply let sin have its way with him. 
As he hung on the cross, you know what surrounded him? Elementary school boys watching it take place. There were drunks all around laughing. There were people betting with money under rocks. What happened to Jesus on the cross? He shriveled like a dying spider. He gasped for air like a bloody rooster. He whimpered like a beaten dog before sin went for the throat bite. See, what God did by putting Jesus into the fight ring was provide a covering. The eternal Lamb of God was slain that you might have His blood applied to your account and be set free. After, after your sin walked out of the ring thinking He was victorious, the body of Jesus lay dead for three days. But then His blood started pumping and His body started moving And at that moment, sin and death were defeated forever. I don't know what rings you have faced and are 12 weeks apart. I don't know what rings you will face this week. But I do know that Jesus Christ was dropped into the ultimate ring for you. And that, my friend, that, my friends, is enough to sustain you. No matter what you're watching or who is on the other side of the ring. Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.